We shall speak of an absolute limit every time the schizo flows pass through the wall, scramble all the codes, and deterritorialize the socius. The body without organs is the deterritorialized socius. The wilderness where the decoded flows run free, the end of the world, the apocalypse. Secondly, however, the relative limit is no more nor less than the capitalist social formation. Secondly, however, the relative limit is no more nor less than the capitalist social formation, because the latter engineers and mobilizes flows that are effectively decoded, but does so by substituting for the codes a quantifying axiomatic that is even more oppressive, with the result that capitalism, in conformity with the movement by which it counteracts its own tendency, is continually drawing near the wall while at the same time pushing the wall further away. Schizophrenia is the absolute limit, but capitalism is the relative limit. Thirdly, there is no social formation that does not foresee or experience a foreboding of the real form in which the limit threatens to arrive and which it wards off with all the strength it can command. Whence, the obstinacy with which the formations preceding capitalism and cast the merchant and the technician, preventing flows of money, and flows of production from assuming an autonomy that would destroy their codes. Such is the real limit. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to the Machine of Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Adkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started today and introduce our guests, consider tossing us a buck a month at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Today we are discussing Anti-Oedipus Chapter 3, Sections 4 through 7, and we have a friend of the show, our guest Madeline, who is here. You can follow her on Twitter at M-A-D-D-1-3-L-I-N-E. And also follow her YouTube channel, Madeline13, spelled M-A-D-E-L-I-N-1-3. Cooper, Madeline, how are you guys today? Doing good. <laughs> Did you say doing good? Doing, oh, <laughs> oh God, we're not getting started there. <laughs> Cooper, I hope you're well, excited. Oh yeah, I'm, uh, like you said, I, I saw Dune last night in the 4D IMAX experience, and it was awesome. It helped crystallize a lot of the content that we're going to discuss and actually there's some other there's some other Delazo Guattarian shit in the movie that I'll maybe talk about in a future episode but anyway yeah I mean you know throughout the book they always talk about the the schizo retreating to the desert where the body without organs and the, the machines are humming and stuff like that so the sections we covered today are psychoanalysis and ethnology territorial representation the barbarian despotic machine and barbarian or imperial representation. We're getting into some fun parts of the book, honestly. Yeah. And we can do this two ways because I'm excited and I can always jump in anywhere. We can either kind of start linearly with either the notes or with your 
opening quote or Maddie, Madeline, well, if you want to like talk about some of the things that you really enjoy and we can then hone in, I'm kind of open. We haven't really discussed what Oedipus, what Oedipus even is sure. that much, at least not in a very, it's not a question we've focused a whole lot of time on. Obviously we've discussed Oedipus, but we haven't really talked about really kind of what it is. We haven't formulated it in, in the Deleuze, which, Yeah, right, right. Because I was thinking, right. you know, going back to the whole Dune thing is this kind of hero's journey. To me, I wondered if there was any relevance or to Oedipus there in that sense, because it feels like the whole kind of messianic thing is a very kind of fascistic or like the barbarian, you know, the barbarian despotic machine kind of ties into that whole thing. And I'll get more into how that relates to Dune, I think specifically to to kind of crystallize that for those that are interested a bit later. But I don't know, what do you what do you think about or what do you both of you think as for what constitutes Oedipus? What is Oedipus comprised of? What comprises Oedipus for Deleuze and Guattari? In these sections, they're describing how it evolves, mm-hmm. how it was constructed basically through the transition from the territorial machine to the despotic machine. It changes position in their mm-hmm. sort of formulation of representation. They do have the, yeah, that's little note there does point to one of their ways of formulating the conditions for Oedipus to be brought about, even though, as they say at the very start of the, the fourth section, like, hey, we're moving too fast. We're acting as if Oedipus was there from the start. Right. Really, they point that even with all of the with the movement from the system of cruelty and marking bodies to the the sort of um, system of terror and the spotic machine, even there, Oedipus doesn't come up. Right. Yeah. Now, I had something, but I, but I definitely want Maddie to continue her line of thought. And I'll try to find where that section is. So now I'll look and I'll let you guys talk. Well, they say Oedipus only seemed like the point of departure for us, conditioned to say Oedipus every time someone speaks to us of father, mother, grandfather. And then they explain how the sort of sexual prohibitions by society are not just directly aimed at incest, but at desire in a sense, yes. desire proper. And so the repression of incest isn't born of repressed Oedipal representation any more than it provokes that repression. It's more that the social psychic repression system gives rise to an Oedipal image as a disfiguration of the repressed. Right. So it's like Oedipus isn't even the desire that we have that then gets repressed. It's sort of distortion of the true potential that desire has. There's a demand for Oedipus, but I guess that's after the sort of colonization of the unconscious by the I mean and 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 when psychoanalysis gets set up as a as a kind of framework and a discipline that establishes the talking cure, they say that Oedipus is demanded by the client, by the analysand. Right. Yes. From the analyst. More, Precisely. more, more mommy, daddy. Yeah. Uh, that's interpretations. what I was Yeah. Precisely. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I have the page number of your notes. I, I'm looking at 177 where they are, they kind of say that, they quote Cardiner, who says a Hindu or an Eskimo can dream of Oedipus without ever being subjected to the complex without having the complex. And they talk about for Oedipus to yeah, be a, that be a limit that is occupied. What, what did make sense? That that quote? The, yeah, the discussion, uh, particularly the Eskimo and I forget which other tribal society they reference. So they 
what is it start? Would you read the quote again? Okay, so it's like that the, beginning portion. The paragraph I'm looking at says, because they're talking about this is right after they kind of describe what, what Maddie just went through, right? That um that Oedipus is a universal kind of in a negative light, and that it's a universal because it is the displacement of the limit that haunts all societies, the displaced represented that disfigures what all societies dread absolutely as their most profound negative, namely the decoded flows of desire. Um, okay. Yeah. This is about the, the displacement and disfigurement that, yeah, the that we just discussed. Limit. I guess before, before I, I, but the quote that you wanted to, to hear, the, it's in the next paragraph. This is not to say that the universal Oedipal limit is quote unquote occupied, strategically occupied in all social formations. We must take Cardiner's remark seriously. A Hindu or an Eskimo can dream of Oedipus without, however, being subjected to the complex, without having, quote unquote, the complex. You were saying that that was mis- yeah, misleading or confusing? Uh, that, yeah, that's confusing or counterintuitive almost, I feel like. I don't know. Something I doesn't jive. I don't get what they're trying to say here. Would that be part of how they explain earlier in Section 4 that the necessary conditions for Oedipus as a complex don't exist in the in the uh, territorial machine because of the way that the families worked. Mm-hmm. Right. That the the way that because they do start to get into the nitty gritty of the conditions necessary, but they do kind of say, like, you know, the family is still open to the social field. Right. This yeah. is the interplay affiliation and, and, and alliance. The way I take it very simply, Coop, and I could just be maybe some like too much. I'm trying not to read ahead before yeah. addressing. Well, I have an example. Way- I'll let you talk and then I can see what, if my example sort of makes. Sense. Sure. I mean, the way I thought about it was you can have daddy issues or struggles with authority, or you can dream of mom, dad, whatever, but that doesn't necessarily equate to all of the things that they feel Oedipus entails. Right. In terms of in terms okay. of capitalism. Yeah. Right. So they say that it's never just the mother acting as mother. Right. Or father acting as father, sister acting as sister. Right. Yeah. Each of the familial roles in that social organization were also more than just that. Right. It's part of how the family uh, constituted a politics at that point. And a practice. Yes. But go ahead, Coop. You, you said you had an example. I don't know if it makes sense to bring it in now because I was going to talk about how within the Dune universe, they have the Missionara Protectiva, which is sort of this myth that they implant in throughout the galaxy. And so basically it's this messianic myth, I think almost that, you know, potentially could have some kind of Oedipal implications, let's say, if nothing else, or so they have this mythology that they seed out into these different cultures, the Fremen being a very sort of pre-capitalist organization, right? They don't really do production for surplus. Their primary, what they place value on is is water, right? Because it's directly tied to social reproduction through water. And water usage is very highly regulated, which is, I think, maybe an interesting way to discuss, I guess, the coded flows or how they, Mm -hmm. like the tribe codes, the flows, or an example of how that works, even within the Fremen, is how they have very prescriptive behavioral rules for how things like crying or spitting, et cetera, any waste, type of wasting water, correct, is, right. is any, okay. any sort yeah. of waste, or if there is, if there is a wasting of water, it is only within certain prescriptive ways can that sort of take place to show honor. You may spit in front of someone or 
or something like that. That makes sense. Crying, et cetera, right? So that's kind of how I think of coded flows. But that's Mm -hmm. delving. That's getting a little far afield from this whole. Oh, something we'll get into. The mythology element. Very much a strategic thing, right? This sort of colonial mythology that they put out into the world. But it's a little bit different in the way that it works within Dune, because in Dune, they are edipalized in a sense. They do the Fremen by them as the represented the representation of the Messiah. But it's really the barbaric despotic machine coming to decode the flows of the Fremen culture and unleash jihad and really kind of untap the flows, not only of spice, but of, of jihad. And now do they code it or to overcode it? I don't know. That's a good that's a good question. I think you're leading a little bit of a leading question because yeah, that does, you're right. It kind of feels like an overcoding, at well, least it, in the kind yeah. of commonsensical way. But anyways. What I think that since we haven't recently watched the movie, but I but I'd like to spin with some of this and I'll play this to right. to, Matt, to to Maddie, the way that I'm listening to you Coop, talk about this in terms of like an inception, like implanting this myth. Let's just right. take it as a fictional right. gift and we can what the way I would read that then would be the way in which overcoding works. And obviously we'll get back to this question of Oedipus and what Oedipus is. And we'll, we'll try to keep returning to that question. But the way I understood the move, if we want to kind of start in the middle about the barbarian despotic machine, mm-hmm. one of the, the two things that happen is the filiations, which are extended in terms of the territorial machine, become a direct filiation under the despot, whether it be Messiah or whatever. And then there's a new alliance, a yes. direct, a direct yes, 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 a kind yes. of a, and that's how overcoding. The new alliance is between the Atreides and the Fremen. Sure. So let's just say that. Yeah. Or yeah. do you think that that sounds, again, we are kind of jumping and we'll jump back, but does that resonate with anything? Um, I'm putting you on the spot here, Madeline, but I'm sorry. <laughs> does that resonate? We can cut it out if you're, don't worry. No, it's fine. We're just kind of talking. Don't feel, um, yeah. yeah don't it definitely worry. makes sense to me because they talk about how the sister is the sister of the wilderness and the mother is the mother of the tribe. So right. the Fremen being, yeah, that makes it the yeah. tribal formation for one. And it is a very matrilineally, mm. they have the Sayadina is sort of the almost the shamanistic figure within their culture. <clears throat> and that's also what enables this religious sort of mythology to be infiltrated within their religious mythology that's like a key to the despotic machine too the despot is also subordinated to this voice on high of their god right which is ultimately like that is the master of the whole system body of the despot that the flows are right yeah paul could very much be the figure of the the despot there and See, the Fremen have, they call them the Lisan al-Gabe, which is the voice from the outer world. So, there you go. Right. It's the the barbarian coming to conquer, even though it gets complicated. We can even talk about mouse here too. I, I don't know if I want to do that, but there's an interesting discussion of exchange and gift and potlatch there. Yeah. I mean, all, all of that sounds great, especially the stuff on voice. We'll, we'll definitely come back to, especially when we move, when we talk about this shift of graphism into a writing a linear writing system i think that that that's when we can talk about the shift of the voice and uh but i do like going back to this question about oedipus so that we can kind of maybe wrap back what does it mean starting point (laughs) to 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 (laughs) section four the way that i was thinking about it today was 
at the end section three, which to me is one of the most interesting little things leading us up to this with talking about how what we could call desiring production or what they call the representative of desire, which is what is repressed. It's not incest that is repressed, as as Maddie said earlier, right? That's the false image. That's the that's the image that the prohibition gives and in making desire disfigured. But the, um, the you, repres- the represent could, yeah, go ahead. I want to ask a clarifying question because I, I didn't quite get that either. That the law or the prohibition wants to disfigure what it Yeah, because like to me, I guess thinking in the kind of Lacanian or even Freudian sense, and I'm kind of talking out of my ass a little bit, but it feels like if I'm remembering correctly, it feels like their perspective would be that, or at least for Lacan, right? It's the barrier to the desire that sort of drives the desire, right? Yeah, or like yeah, that, that's or that generates the satisfaction. That's and they and they call it, but they are saying no, right? Yeah, they call exactly. Lacan out for that. That's how section seven ends when they say, Oh, Lacan has, has done some work to unravel the Oedipus complex and even just call he hasn't it gone far enough. Yeah. but they, but he hasn't, he hasn't gotten rid of law castration phallus. And so desires is still well, welded to the law. Right. And they even say a few times in the, in these sections that somehow by getting rid of Oedipus, but keeping all the other stuff, it's actually more morose and, and, oppressive now that's a totally separate argument that i think we could yeah yeah we we could, that, that we spent a whole thing to they do say that the the representative desire they call it the intensive germinal flux okay good. and good, with good. what i got what i got from the what i got from the intensive germinal flux was if i had to boil it down it's the ambiguity of signs right of of signs being either plus or minus right okay and that this is why the Dogon, or I think it's not the Dogon. They, are, they, they use an example of the Dogon, but also of the Urugu. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the man, the, yeah. The, 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 the guy takes the placenta off into the wilderness and eats it. And he becomes like his mother's brother, but also his own father. All these things, right? That this is the, this is like the, the non-codable flows, because the signs are ambiguous, because they could be plus or minus, mm-hmm. they are the non-codable flows. And as we know, the very first thing that the, the primitive territorial socius does is its job is to code the flows. Right. And so they kind of describe how this is why the intensive journal flux is the first thing to be repressed. This is the representative desire is repressed. What does the repressing, the repressing representation is the alliances. Right. The alliances that form the memory of words and all that biotechnics that Nietzsche talks about. So and representation as far as in terms of sign or signifier signif- they, uh, signified uh, or is it representation in terms of a political? It's a political praxis by the it's, it's what they call the primary homosexuality of the they call them the great coders, the the men who gather together to sort of negotiate marriages, for example. Okay. Right. Gotcha. Right. That's the face of a lion. And then the displaced represented is basically what does not pass in the system. All of this leads to, and then if we add to the notion that what does not pass the the non-codable, you could say that 
takes on and gets disfigured as Oedipus. It takes on the image of Oedipus. They're trying to prepare us for how Oedipus comes to establish itself later in the capitalist formation. But I think all of that goes into this notion that the prohibitions aren't necessarily bearing on, because at this, at this stage, as, as we said earlier, you don't have persons and names at the same time, right? As we were talking about, you either have one or the other, you're on this side or the other of incest, right? They, they quote, Derrida talking about Rousseau, right? You know, before the yeah. feast, there was no incest. Right. right. So this is the interesting thing to talk about because you've already kind of alluded to it. And this is where I would open it up to, to both of you. When they describe Turner's essay about K and they talk about how the shaman is performing schizoanalysis and he's bringing, he's bringing all of these different rites together, but he's also bringing flows of words, but he's also really, he's doing a social diagnosis because he's taking all the people in the tribe and getting them to open up about their either secret or repressed disharmonies. And he's right. forcing a kind of internal dialogue and letting everyone air their grievances out. It's this kind of social therapeutics. And this yeah, is what yeah, they yeah. want to kind of call schizoanalysis. But one of the things in the background haunting this case is the very fact that so much of the disharmony in the tribe is due to British colonialization, right? And this is one of the reasons for uh, the chieftainship being in disarray and the, the little village being dilapidated. So much of this is due to a complete disequilibrium in the sort of day-to-day economy, which is kind of imposed from outside. And so they kind of say that Oedipus is our intimate colonial education, because as Maddie pointed out earlier, in this system, your father is never just your father, right? And it's never just reduced to mommy, daddy. It's sort of open on on so many sides. The affiliations are extended. The alliances are are keeping things open, keeping things open to the social. Whereas the the colonizer says, "No, that's not your chief. That's you can have your father, but you know you can't have your you can't have your different power dynamics. Your father's just your father. Your mommy's just your mommy. Go off and into your corner and and triangulate." I think at this stage, at this part of the book, that's one of the most forceful so, and eye-opening. So this involves territorialization or I guess a more deterritorialized social relative to territory because you know I go just go back to thinking that the only time the only time it really makes sense for there to be private property or like no, I got that backwards. Private property necessitates naming. It necessitates lineage, right? Because there's filiation as far as what the inheritance must be passed. It doesn't matter who your father is unless you're set to inherit something from your father. I see where you're going with that. Otherwise, what's the the reason this arises is because of private property. Is what that's why surnames evolved. If you couldn't own private property like uh, serfs or whatever, just have first names mostly. You know, I, I still think that the decoded flows of private property in the broadest sense are still less formed than we're used to. But, uh, you know, that's that's a larger question. Yeah, okay. Madeline, do you have anything to, to add about this fourth section, about the stuff about Oedipus? Or... Well, not only is your father never just your father, but the chief was never only the chief, because they say all the positions of a chief lived in intensity with the group. They're describing a more like, it's almost like, 
the despotic machine centralized society at the same time as it decollectivized it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which makes so sense. That would be the overcoding. Later. Yes. That's the yeah. overcoding. Go on. It's this kind of primitive schizoanalysis, we could say, because it's not only a discovery of rational interest, but what were the investments of the unconscious that happened that the, the sort of group therapy thing mm-hmm. achieves. And it's interesting that they see that that early because they're not really, not to ascribe too much of a prescriptive character to Deleuze and Guattari, but they are sort of saying that like there there were both positives and negatives or like there, there were things lost yeah. and things gained from these different kind of right. massive social evolutions that they mm-hmm. analyze through the lens of machines. Yeah, I like that. I like that they do. That's good. They do kind of say, you know, if the territorial machine is marking bodies, which they, and inscribing bodies, and this is the sort of basis for territorial representation, right? And the, what's the triad they give, right? The, the sort of, uh, the hand that, that marks the body that, that receives the mark and the eye that extracts the surplus value. Yes. Right. Yeah. The, and they, I think that the use of Nietzsche and um, the second essay in the genealogy of morals is, is they, they make it very clear that they, they find that book to be, what do they say? It's, it should be the, the book of modern ethnology right. as is, opposed is to mouse. Yeah. Or sorry. It's not the hand that marks it's the voice. Right. Isn't that right? I'm, I'm messing up the triad now. I yeah, it's, it's hand voice. I yeah. hand voice. I there you go. And one of the they, they even kind of cite Claster, right, saying that you need to have a practice. eye to find the right stone that can't it's not supposed to cut too easily. Right. right. It can't be it can't be too blunt because it has to cut somewhat, but it can't be too sharp. There has to be like this negotiation between the amount of pain extracted. Right. Exactly. And the ability to mark. And that's the that's the cruelty. That's the system of cruelty. System that's, of cruelty right? that's the theater of cruelty, because they're the kind of referencing our toe there. But yeah. that's but they they describe cruelty as the movement of cultures onto and onto bodies, belaboring them, right? And and marking them, you know, and there's it's a collective affair, right? There they quote Nietzsche again. There's so much that is festive and in cruelty. And this, what, what I find interesting is they want to say, this is kind of setting up, talking about the representation stuff. They, they want to say that even if there is a resonance and a correspondence and cooperation between the voice, the hand and the eye, the voice is still autonomous or semi-autonomous. Right. And not subordinated yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. to the eye assemblages, which is kind of why they say that in this stage of representation, the eye doesn't read in the way that we think about it. There is a system of cruelty specifically in the, the system of cruelty that, that the eye doesn't read it. it it's almost like it, it more extracts. Right. Because it, and it, it's the same thing as I'm kind of saying when they go back to this argument about privileging use over meaning, when they talk about the social analysis of the Ndembu doctor who's performing mm-hmm. schizoanalysis in act, as they call it. Yeah, there are flows of words. Yes, people talk, but the, the different words and, and their quote unquote meaning have as much 
efficacy, if not less so than the different instruments used, like to, to bring out the the incisors of the of the shade that's haunting this this person. So I <laughs> I think that it's kind of interesting to see that that words at this stage in this type of graphism don't have a kind of superiority, right? They don't take the status of the signifier. Yeah, it's almost like it. the asignifying, right? Are they it's, asignifying the marks, the marking of the body? It's that the that there's the asignifying hasn't yet been completely repressed or thrown out of the picture for the the glory of the the signifier, especially not for the glory of a detached signifier like the phallus that we see later. I'm not trying to move ahead too quickly. I guess I was just thinking these things out loud. And right. if you oh, guys yeah, want to yeah, fill yeah, in no, some same. gaps, yeah, yeah. Matt, you may have something to add or, or fill in. I was thinking know. about the singers, and that's why I brought up a signifying. The uh, Going back to the, yes, the Gayaki singing and the asignification right. there. And I wondered if there was a relevance, but that was all. I think the point about cruelty being the movement of culture on bodies is like really important. It's one of my favorite things that they developed. Yeah, that concept. It's not like these kind of machinic organizations of things just go away when the mass machine evolves. Mm -hmm. Because Deleuze also says at one point, I don't know if it's something like this must be in the book somewhere, but he says that the revolutionary flows of desire inject themselves into the edifice of the old social arrangements right so they that's part of their non-linearity of history too is the fact that we don't just progress into like a better stage of things right all these things are still with us in different formations there's not just an evolution into higher forms i mean there's they do kind of say that the not only the despotic machine but even the capitalist machine they integrate some of these uh, sectors, they quoted this guy, I try to track him down, named Wittfogel. In the despotic machine, his main point is that there is diminishing administrative returns, which basically means that while the despotic machine overcodes the coded flows, there are still sectors that are kind of left semi-autonomous, right? And because trying to like micromanage every little detail of the the remnants, the ruins of the territorial machine, there's just not as much benefit. There's not, there's not as much surplus value, we could say, to, to be extracted from that. Right. Yeah. Good uh, so it's kind of interesting that that some of the pieces of these other machines, including the polyvocality of the territorial graphism and these other things, that that some of them do retain semi-autonomy but they're no longer within the same regime i think is what they they say okay that makes sense i just wanted to bring up briefly i think that um while we're on this subject of of coding and decoded flows that this is definitely like the coding of flows is very much the human security system the nick land kind of concept right because (laughs) it's all about it's a it's about warding It's like this tooth and nail fight by the pre-capitalist societies to ward off the flows that they couldn't control. That's partly, as Deleuze and Quattro kind of try to argue, that this is why the ambiguous signs of the germinal influx have to be repressed, because they can't be coded. The other nightmare, though, obviously, is the the axiomatic of capital, which promises the liberation of decoded flows, and yet at the same time, it's a much 
more somber organization than the theater of cruelty that we were just describing. Just yeah, kind because of the, the irony. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it it builds the channels that these flows exist in. So it's not that your desire is free under capitalism. It's it's more that it's it's almost analogous to the societies of control versus a society of discipline. Whereas just existing in the society, you are already controlled. That's good. But to be specific about the system of cruelty, they say that it was it persists bricked into the state apparatus nice. in these kind of like quasi-autonomous sectors because they're less threatening to the despotic machine. So it kind of limits and tolerates it and subsumes it under a higher order of law that is more terrible. And then <laughs> that's where they say that the law's opposition to despotism only comes later when the state presents itself as reconciliatory of classes distinct from the state, where it yeah. must reshape its sovereignty, which they connect to Foucault, but I would also connect to Lenin because he says that like these kind of social Democrats want to tell you that the state is a reconciler of classes when really mm. it's an organ of the class oppression. Capitalism, yeah. As a historical event, I kind of wonder about like the Magna Carta as as maybe an example of the despotic regime having to sort of cede some rights to the growing aristocratic class and give up some of its absolutism, all the better to conserve its machinery, maybe. I was thinking about this relative to debt and the sort of uh, the hard limit almost placed on the the theater of cruelty or the the cruelty element is that there's a like physical limit to the amount of inscription that can occur on the body, but there's no limit to the amount of inscription that can occur virtually via writing, etc. Mm. And so that alone opens up a lot of territory for capital to decode and overcode. And it also is a much harsher and stronger form of control right because there's only so much marking that can be done there's only so, so much cruelty that a body can take but debt can be infinite and i don't know if that ties into this notion of infinite debt that they have and discuss later but just to throw that up as a potential question to think on it seems like all these technologies are now used in the capitalist formation to apply and enforce the axiomatic of the flows can you give me an example of that you were saying with writing and all this accounting and digi yeah, yeah, digitization yeah. Okay. form gotcha. of that, like that. Right. Is... Yeah, I mean, it is interesting just thinking about your, your finite, infinite question, because what, what, I, what I always see Guattari trying to do in other works and later works is talk about, I know you, you like to discuss the stuff about the asignifying and the, and the asubjective. Well, <laughs> Right. No, but, but this is part and parcel of it. When, when they try to argue how, for example, faciality works in primitive cultures versus in capitalist societies, whereas in capitalist societies, it's always about answering yes, no to these questions very quickly. Man, woman, old, young, blah, blah, blah. It's about the white wall of signification and the black hole of subjectification. Guattari is always kind of search for these like ulterior extra signifying and i know even a signifying you know ways around or out that leak leak out of that system and so when he's talking about the primitive the territorial inscription process and territorial representation when the voice is still not yet subordinated to whether we say to the you know 
to the phallus outside the signifying chain, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. He loves this word polysimus and polyvocal. He loves trying to reintroduce this. And so like he's, he even says here, this is bottom 184, he says, there's always social repression, but the apparatus of repression varies depending in particular on what plays the role of the representative on which the repression is brought to bear. In this sense, it is possible that the primitive codes, the moment they are acting on the flows of desire with a maximum of vigilance and extension, binding them in a system of cruelty, maintain an infinitely greater affinity with desiring machine than does the capitalist axiomatic, which nonetheless liberates the decoded flows. This is another way of kind of restating what we were just talking about. But one of the things that he is indicating in this area is that before we have an alphabet proper or a linear writing system, when we're still in this kind of semi-autonomous graphic system, he wants to kind of say, because he says the flows have lost none of their polyvocity. And the simple representative representation has not yet taken the place of the representative, right? So this is about, obviously, that gets us into more questions about Oedipus and the role of the despot. But this notion of polyvocity is interesting to me. And I'm wondering if the substitution for the polyvocity in the territorial machine and the overcoding by the despotic machine, as you said, is then the infinity of linear writing as you're talking about. So it's kind of, it's kind of a question of two open multiplicities right hopefully that makes makes some sense yeah i think so a little bit <laughs> you just had a, a thing about mouse and on 185 they they keep coming back to this argument that exchange and circulation are not it's not the primary principle right. of of society i wonder yeah. if you guys had anything on that score that, that you'd like to say i do if you don't yeah go ahead wasn't it leotard that doesn't he discuss the primacy of exchange or am I miss am I confabulating I might have let's, to let's just let's just leave that open okay, we'll, gotcha. we'll, we'll leave that open question but I don't necessarily think he does I mean this isn't exactly what you were necessarily looking for relative to because they say that marking marking and writing and inscription is is primary mm-hmm. and that is because of desire desire has to be coded first before it can before and so that is primary over exchange and i forget how they the way that they phrase it is interesting because there's something about you can't i'd have to pull up the actual quote for it to make sense but i did have an interesting like segue relative to how this how like mouse and the gift and potlatch play into the plot of dune because you have the emperor that gives the gift of the fiefdom of arrakis to the Atreides, but it's a sort of potlatchy gift because the gift means there's now a responsibility that because you are the liege lord or like you control the fief, it's your responsibility now to repay that gift with spice production and increase spice production. And so it's this very much double bind scenario that they are caught in because they can't deny the gift right? They can't deny the gift from the sovereign or the chief, the emperor, right? Because they would lose status if you refuse the gift. Also in accepting the gift, they have sort of condemned themselves to their own fall because they can't pay back the gift. At least that's brought into question, I think. It's kind of like when they talk about um, it's only when the the laborer is, is the, the labor capacity is is our own that we're free to own it that we're free to sell it right it's 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 when we 
become workers and no longer our slaves. We, we're we're free now, but we're we're free to to sell our labor. You know, right, it's, it's a double bind. There's definitely a passage that's relevant with mouse and exchange and desire and white desire is primary. What I thought was interesting about this argument against exchange as primary is is this they have four points where they they kind of lay out i won't go through each of them there i like this notion that basing everything on exchange presupposes an equilibrium that there would be some kind of primordial equilibrium that would allow exchange to be generalized and that just seems to be using our modern categories, just like we Oedipalize the shaman curing in a social practice, we, we Oedipalize it because we, we saw father and daddy. And, and so we, we kind of project, I think it's the same thing when we assume that society is based either on exchange or as Sartre does on scarcity, we kind of import or export our modern categories. I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but they oppose exchange to debt which mm-hmm. is part of why they say that Nietzsche is better than Mao's. The other account is exchange versus function of things, which right. is also like meaning, interpretive, psychoanalytic kind of things versus figuring out what something is doing and why. I know that I like that they, they talk about, there's a question that Marcel Mauss at least left open. Is death primary, is debt primary in relation to exchange, or is it merely a mode of exchange, a means in the service right. of exchange? Yeah. And I think that one of the things that I found fascinating and that they expand upon in anti-Oedipus or in a thousand plateaus, but that I, I would love to discuss somewhat is it seems like if exchange were so central and so primary, then they wouldn't keep discussing the reasons for why the technician, the blacksmith, and the merchant are so circumscribed and cordoned off. And as they said, encasted, they're, they're kind of kept separate from contaminating everything, right? With the abstract equivalent of, of a cash economy. You know, I mean, even, even with, with Mouse, we, when we talked to, when he talks about little markets coming up, it's always minor and separate from the type of gift economy that and potlatch that that we that we discussed and that they discussed. I think I found the quote I was looking for. It's the Meyer Fortes. Meyer Fortes okay. makes a passing remark that is joyous and refreshingly sound. The circulation of women is not the problem. I want, oh, this is from a prior second. Woman circulates of herself. She is not at one's disposal, but the juridical rights governing progenitor are determined. For the profit of a specific person, we see no reason, in fact, for accepting the postulate that underlies exchangeist notions of society. Society isn't, first of all, a milieu for ex- wait. Society is not, first of all, a milieu for exchange, where the essential would be to circulate or to cause to circulate, but rather a socius of inscription, where the essential thing is to mark and to be marked. There is circulation only if inscription requires or permits it. That's a good point, and it's good to remember because they keep coming back to what seem to be these these arguments amongst anthropologists about exchange. And as Maddie kind of brought up with uh, the role of debt, and as they bring in Nietzsche more and more to make this point, because I'm not sure they can really make the strongest point that they want to without pointing to, to Nietzsche, but they say, um, the use of the cruelest mnemotechnics and naked flesh to impose a memory of words founded on the ancient biocosmic memory 
That is why it's so important to see debt as a direct consequence of the primitive inscription process instead of making it and the inscriptions themselves into an indirect means of universal exchange. The inscription of the socius is primary and the debt that the new despotic arrangement makes infinite or begins to make infinite is the other primary factor that mm -hmm. kind of blurs exchange out of the position of being like a determinant of social relations. What's interesting here too is the Kafka reference. And I think it's, is it the penal colony? We talked about this, I think in the last anti-Oedipus episode about how it's the, the one who is marked or the one who is to administer the punishment, like the prisoner doesn't know. And they say the marking, the flesh will know the punishment. Their punishment is written on them with the machine, right? What they violated and their and their punishment is is like written on them with the machine, something like that, right? I think they right. do reference this again, but they also yes, reference they do the Great here. Wall of China a couple of times. Another Kafka story. Did we read this part for if exchange underlies everything? Why is it that what takes wait, let's see. For if exchange underlies everything, why is it that what takes place looks like anything but an exchange? Why must it be a gift or counter gift and not an exchange? And why is it necessary that the giver also be in the position of someone who has been robbed so as to dem so as to demonstrate clearly that he does not expect an exchange, not even a deferred exchange? It is theft that prevents the gift and the counter gift from entering into an exchange's relation. Desire knows nothing of exchange. It only knows theft and gift, at times the one within the other under the effect of a primary homosexuality. Thus the anti-exchanges amorous machine encountered by Joyce and exile, and Klosowski and Robert. In Gorma ideology, it is as though a wife could only be given or carried away, kidnapped, hence in a certain sense stolen, every union that could too manifestly appear to be the result of a direct exchange between two lineages or lineage segments is, in this society, if not prohibited, at least widely disproved of, disapproved of. Will it be said that if desire knows nothing of exchange, it is because exchange is desire's unconscious? Will this be explained by the exigencies of generalized exchange? But what entitles one to declare the shares of debt are secondary compared with a totality that is more real? Yet exchange is known, well known in the primitive socius, but as that which must be exercised and casted severely restricted so that no corresponding value can de develop as an exchange value that would introduce the nightmare of a commodity economy. <laughs> There's a lot here. Um, <laughs> Maddie, do you want to respond first? One of the things that I want to talk about, because I also, I want, there's a lot of things I want to talk about, but <laughs> I, I, want to, I want to just talk about one and let you guys talk too, is sure. this notion about desire only knows theft and gift. And one of the things that they talk about is that the primary homosexuality of arranging marriages, right? Because they do say these men, the great coders are never more, homosexual than when they are arranged marriages. Right. Um, is that aspect needs to be repressed. And that's what's going on here, why it has to be theft and gift and not exchange. So the negotiate, the, the negotiative, deliberative planning aspect, everything that makes up the primary homosexuality of arranging marriages, that is what also has to undergo a certain repression, right? The movement of, of alliance, of forming alliances. Social field comes into play here, right? Well, yeah. 
because it is a it is a politics and a practice and a practice as 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 we talked about earlier. But that last part about the nightmare of a commodity economy is also begging to be talked about. Yeah, I mean that's super interesting, but I don't know what they. It is a nightmare, yes. But <laughs> this gets this gets back to what I was saying about why the merchant and the blacksmith and the technician they they have to be cordoned off in a special place so that they can't release the general equivalent, right? They, they like if but that, isn't that what the axiomatic of capitalism is? Is the general well, equivalency? That's that's what it it champions and that's what it's founded on. But that doesn't mean that there aren't separate cash economies like even like seashell and stone economies that that function as monies like we even know that some of the coins are from the earliest despotic ages right where you have the face of the sovereign on the coin Mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily take on a kind of what we would call a gold standard right i mean that's this is the first few chapters that marx lays out in capital about how there is that some commodity can take the the role of general equivalent. That's kind of what I was interested in because they do they do kind of say that once once a general equivalent starts to circulate, all the values they have a great section where they talk about this where, where all the values start to oscillate and there's a kind of chaos. Anyway, this actually continues off from your cold open. So when such societies are confronted with this real limit, and the real limit is the obstinacy with which the previous territorial machines, the previous despotic machine and the, the previous social formations, they ward off, the, the real limit they ward off is the abstract flows of money and flows of production, right? So when such societies are confronted with this real limit repressed from within, but which returns to them from without, they regard this event with melancholy as a sign of their approaching death. For example, the Bohannons describe the Teve economy, which codes three kinds of flows, consumer goods, prestige goods, and women and children. When money supervenes, it can only be coded as an object of prestige, yet merchants used to lay hold of sectors of consumer goods traditionally held by the women, all the codes vacillate. And so, you know, they go on and talk about, they're really kind of talking about a colonial invasion, right, of of pre-capitalists or yeah. you know, well, extra-capitalist societies. I mean, you could look at this like in the context of Arrakis, right, the, the spice mining, because you have the tribes, the Fremen tribes that are, and the planets colonized for the extraction of spice, et cetera. And then, then the Fremen begin to work as uh, like their sh- housekeepers and, and things like that, that some of the traditional tribes people and like the disruption there by the introduction of this. Gotcha, yeah. But there's a far more like insidious, that's the thing that's kind of interesting relative to this conflict between Atreides Harkonnen is there's a far more insidious, this this mythology that they utilize to sort of create this alliance, right? There's a, it's almost worse than just to come and extract and sort of have this, like you guys, you have your territory, we have our territory, our extractive, but this is an even more insidious form of, control or right or or like conquest or colonization because it's colonizing the desire mm-hmm. of the right. fremen and utilizing their desire as a weapon of of revolution i mean it does sound like a more insidious and you know fictional mythical almost extraterrestrial manipulation of the codes right but that's precisely what we're talking about is yeah. when colonialism and capitalism 
cause the codes to vacillate and to scramble that obviously would have direct social disequilibria and upheavals that couldn't be predicted. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Do we want to say anything, I guess, more about territorial representation? We started to get into it, right? Because we started to talk about the threefold independence of the the voice, the hand, and the eye. Do we want to talk about that? Because I know it seems like we want to talk about despots, right? I think it's like we want to talk about one of the things I thought was interesting, right, was that, you know, this notion of the initiatory cults where that Claster lays out, right, with the hunting societies where, you know, you become a man and to, or even the women too get, they get these tattoos with thorns, but the men also get cut on their backs with stones and stuff. And to enter adulthood, to be a part of the tribe and to be equal to each member of the tribe, you have to go through all the cruelty that they suffered. And I thought it was interesting that they say, you know, the eye that is, that is extracting pleasure, the surplus value of pleasure from this theater of cruelty in the initiation, in the incisions and excisions, it's not about vengeance, right? There's not like a revenge element. Mm-hmm. We'll have to wait till the next formation to get that. I thought that was an interesting, interesting point. I have a passage that I think might go towards the colonial Oedipus. That's okay. also, I think, kind of interesting. At the heart of primitive production, one always finds oneself at four plus N, in the system of ancestors and affines, far from being able to claim that here that there is no end to Oedipus, one sees that it never manages to begin when it is always brought to a halt well before three plus one. And if there is a primitive Oedipus, it is a neg Oedipus in the sense of a neg entropy. Oedipus is indeed a limit or a displaced represented, but precisely in such a way that each member of the group is always on this side of or beyond without ever occupying the position. It is colonization that causes Oedipus to exist, but an Oedipus that is taken for what it is, a pure obsession, inasmuch as it assumes that these savages are deprived of the control over their own social production, that they are ripe for being reduced to the only thing that they have left, the familial reproduction imposed on them being no less Oedipalized by force than it is alcoholic on sickly or sickly. It's pure oppression. What did yeah. I say? Pure obsession. Oh, okay. <laughs> which, which is maybe an, an, a, a Freudian slip. <laughs> that is absolutely a Freudian slip because I'm you, obsessed you... with this movie because I think here's the thing too is as part of this alliance that the Atreides want to make with the Fremen, they're really kind of reducing it to this reproduction of bodies for the war, for, for attack, for power, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you react to this passage when you read it, Maddie? Uh, I remember it. But I don't think I don't think I wrote anything about it. I remember thinking about because I've seen Guattari use this notion of neg entropy without explaining it before mm-hmm. he's done it in Machine Gun Conscious. And I remember being like, okay, I want to make sure I understand this. So I fucking read articles on neg entropy. And really all I needed to do was like look at the first paragraph of a Wikipedia article. I kind of recommend sometimes when, you know, to keep yourself from going down wormholes. But what I get from it is that neg entropy is just a kind of way of situating oneself in relation to a norm, right? So if there is an Oedipus in, or a normal distribution. So if there is an Oedipus in 
primitive societies, the territorial machine. It's a neg Oedipus, which means if Oedipus is the norm for our societies, you can kind of see how far away they are from our norm. Does that make sense to y'all how I'm interpreting it? Because I'm not 100% sure. Neg entropy is reverse entropy. It means things become more in order. By more, by order is meant organization, structure, and function, the opposite of randomness or chaos. One example of neg entropy is a star system such as the solar system, which, yeah, that's a good example. So, right. But, like, but, but if you look, look at the very first paragraph, because I think that that's misleading. Or within information systems or what? It says an information theory and statistic neg entropy is used as a measure of distance to. Oh, okay. Reality. I see what you're saying. Yeah. 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 That's okay. basically how I was understanding. Yeah. That. That's a more. If there's a neg Oedipus, if Oedipus is the norm, their neg Oedipus shows this distance from norms, from the norm of Oedipus that we have. I, I guess I'm just trying to like think of it as concretely as I can because they don't yeah, really yeah, yeah. say much more about that. Right. Well, it could make yeah. sense in both ways, kind of, mm -hmm. because okay. like if there's a primitive Oedipus, it's something that is not their norm is yes. what they're saying. But it would also be like it's an Oedipus that is forming becoming more and more edible as society evolves or as as colonialism installs it yeah it, and then it becomes the norm when before right. it was the non-norm right or abnormal. Yeah. i think that you pointed this out earlier maddie and i and i want to try to elicit it more where it's if we take seriously the beginning of this chapter where they say Universal history, as Marx laid it out, is retrospective, it's ironic, it's singular, it's critical, but it's contingent. I mean, I think that this is the interesting thing that for, and Classers is good on this too, when he's against this evolutionism, that we would start with a territorial machine and it would necessarily evolve towards the capitalist machine and Oedipus that at a certain point, given enough time, these societies would eventually develop Oedipus. I think this is why colonization is that contingent accident that like befalls them from without, even if they fear it from within. Mm -hmm. It's not a necessity. It's not necessarily a necessity, right? It's, it is this. Um, contingent historical. historical yeah. Fact. I mean, I, I think that that's, that, that was one thing I just wanted to, to bring out in, in what you said, because I do that sometimes too, where I fall into, into this notion where it's like, okay, we're evolving towards, but obviously like, there is a sense in which capitalism is, is a kind of devolution, at least for, I think, Watery sometimes, right? That he he obviously, with his his militant stance, he he kind of sees it as as the dead end of history. I mean, that's what they call it even in, this, in these sections, right? It's But only um, insofar as it's capable of its self-critique, right? I think this is this is interesting, right? That, that that's the same thing Oedipus has to be brought to as its own, its self-critique. You know, I could add to my other statement about about how basically the Atreides utilization of the social reproduction of the Fremen to they're using it to power the war machine. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the Fremen war machine predates whatever, but can still be like the war machine is pre-state, right? If I'm remembering correctly. It's external to the it's state. External. If we're if we're using but the state can utilize it. The, the, at some point incorporate it. it at some point, it appropriates the state. State it will appropriate war machines. That's that's okay. what they argue in in ATP, and they have all these axioms. So that makes sense. I mean, that makes that's kind of what what we see in a lot of epics. We see in a lot of epic literature outside of this. Um, Maddie, have you ever read Gilgamesh? 
I don't think so. I was trying to set up for our move to the despotic regime, okay. but just to cut it short, the, the way that Gilgamesh epic starts is all the men in Europe, the town that Gilgamesh is ruling over, they are all angry and they come to the gods and they say, do something about Gilgamesh. He has invoked the, the right of the first night, you know, prima nocta with all our wives. He's knocking up all our wives. And so all of our children, all of our firstborn are obviously going to be Gilgamesh's. The reason why I kind of, re- there's, of course, the epic is more than that, but that's how the story starts. And I think that it's it's good for in my mind, crystallizing the the new alliance and the direct filiation from the despot, right? From the god. And uh, and I do think that we could move to that unless there was something else we wanted to say. Well, they talk about how yeah. the, the rite of first night is analogous to the, the way that the despotic formation imposes itself at some point. Yeah, they do. I, I, I know we'll find it. I'll look for that passage, Maddie. We can kind of start from there because I think it is it is essential to a lot of these these myths, which many times have to do about the birth of the state, right? Yeah, I mean Moses, right? That's kind of like the birth mm-hmm. of the I guess the Israelite state. Well, yeah, and they and he even gives Moses as a Moses flees from the Egyptian machine right into the wilderness. It's, and it's interesting too, that Moses is the outside. He's like the out, the outsider. That's the in really an insider. That's the exogamy and the endogamy that we'll Which have to. It's very interesting too. in the figure of Paul Moadib too, because he is, he will know your ways if, if born to them. So even though he's, he's the outside that constitutes the set sort of has this inner knowledge somehow well yeah and it's also christ and saint paul is another example that yes, 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 right, yeah, right, yeah. where christ is he's of hebrew descent but he's come to overturn the mosaic law right and, and to fulfill it and raise it up and then yeah, paul's yeah. the one that goes out and tries to universalize it for for everyone so yeah well i think all of these are great examples to uh jump off of and um i'll look for that that the right of the first night because i know that i know maddie i know you're right that they say it you found the passage. Yes, I did. Do you want to start with um, either the old inscription? Because you, you mentioned that earlier. The old inscription remains, but is bricked over by and in the inscription of the state. The blocks subsist, but have become encasted and embedded bricks, having only a controlled mobility. The territorial alliances are not replaced, but are merely allied with the new alliance. The territorial affiliations are not replaced, but are merely affiliated with the direct affiliation. It is like an immense right of the firstborn over all affiliations, an immense right of the wedding night over all alliances. I like the Nietzsche quote of the, at the end too, but I think that just goes to add more sort of more flavor to this, this notion that we've been kind of getting at that this notion of um, allowing for the parts of the territorial machine to, to like subsist or coexist, but with a semi-autonomy and there, but yeah, the notion of the first right and the right to the firstborn. So the right of the firstborn over all affiliations, the right of the wedding night over all alliances. I mean, we can obviously think about all kinds of fiction, but I was given the notion of Gilgamesh. I keep thinking about, well, another of Cooper's favorites, Game of Thrones. Now, I know, Cooper, you've read the books a lot, but is it basically kind of a similar scene where... Um, yeah, the black of hair and Robert Baratheon's sons. There's Jer- that, Joffrey. yeah. There's that stuff. Joffrey's exactly. Blonde. 
that brings in the whole question of incest and, and Oedipus in its own way. And also the, the wedding needs a bedding, right? And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Tyrion's, Tyrion's re- resistance to that. Yeah, it's that, interesting that, that it's fate. a group. It's a group thing, right? Since I was talking about Dune, I'll just briefly mention though what I think is kind of interesting relative to filiation and alliance here is that within Dune, the concubine of, of Leto bears a son when she was supposed to bear a daughter. And the reason that is such a problem is that the Bene Gesserit, who, like I said earlier, have been working on this sort of centuries-long breeding program, eugenics, to, to basically bioengineer the Ubermensch effectively. And so what happens is this birth of this unsanctioned birth, the son threatens both the bloodlines of the Harkonnens and the Atreides, and they need those bloodlines to create the Ubermensch. Because the thing is that the Harkonnens have a male heir that could have been wed to the the daughter of the Atreides and sealed the, the alliance that way. But because specifically, because Paul is a male, it throws that into into disarray and threatens the the furthering of both lines. Yeah, I mean, this is good. And and the way I like to sort of connect it up, I'll just say transversely, is <laughs> this notion about the nomadic distribution, right? Because for the territorial machine with the body without organs of the earth, what subdivided are the people, right? The affiliations and the and the alliances. With right. the overcoating of the state, we see that the state now takes on this aspect through the despot, right, as the, the new alliance, new body without organs. Mm-hmm. And they call it a pseudo-territoriality. And what happens is now the state, and I think they even somewhere quote Ingalls saying something similar, but the, the state now has the, now it's the distribution of space, right? The distribution of land. It's no longer the open sort of agrarian pastures known as the nomos now it's it's um now the logos comes in to rationally apportion the land up and you can talk about fiefdoms and these other things too right which, we, which you mentioned earlier but I, I do think it's interesting well unless you guys have something to add to that I, one of my favorite parts is is in sort of connected to that i mean this notion of and, and deleuze comes to this in different books but this distinction between a nomadic distribution within space that doesn't distribute space and then sort of the distribution of space, right, by the state machine. So I'm wondering if that, because the the Fremen who are nomadic, but they have cities that are called sieges, but they're still nomadic, but so they still have, it's almost like that, what is, right, it's like they're on the edge of the camp, I think in the prior section. Do you know what I'm talking about, Taylor? When they talk about the nomadic hunter, even though there's no pure nomad, the forest as the space of for the men hunting, that's their space. Whereas the, you know, because it's it's kind of gender divided, whereas right, the right. women rule over the encampment. But the encampment is always kind of provisionally alongside. But they're, right. they're these two segmented spaces. And because, as they say, there has to be a minimum of stock. There has to be a minimum of stock taking you can't follow the pure you can't follow the pure flows without some sort of deduction from the chain and detachment from the flows or other way around anyway they they talk about which what i mentioned earlier that it's really with the state proper that you have a cycle of redistribution and cycle of credits and you have money coming up 
But it, they say, for without question, money does not begin by serving the needs of commerce, or at least it has no autonomous mercantile model. The despotic machine holds the following in common with the primitive machine. It confirms the latter in this respect, the dread of decoded flows, flows of production, but also mercantile flows of exchange and commerce that might escape the state monopoly with its tight restrictions and its plugging of flows. When Etienne Balaz asked why capitalism wasn't born in China in the 13th century, when all the necessary scientific and technical conditions nevertheless seem to be present, the answer lies in the state, which closed the mines as soon as the reserves of metal were judged sufficient and which retained a monopoly or a narrow control over commerce, the merchant as functionary. Now, this is really interesting to me, the Chinese deciding to close the mines. It reminds me of... Some of the stuff we discussed about in mercantilism, it's kind of an all or nothing game, right? That by, you know, importing more goods, you're exporting your your treasures, right? Your, right, your, right. your, your metal supplies. And as we know, capital doesn't really give a shit about states, right? So it's kind well, of interesting it does, too in that sense. I think it does insofar as it allows the reproduction, its own reproduction. Well, yeah, but but, but it will if it if another mode is more efficient at its reproduction. I think it will seek. It's like gravity; it will seek the lowest resistance to its reproduction. Right. I think. Well, capital is a stronger force than natural or national boundaries, mm-hmm. but also natural. Like that slip makes sense as well. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, we certainly see this because even I guess ostensibly China. I don't know if I want to get in that whole debate about China's capitalist or socialist status. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's the story of the globalized economy. That's why. It's kind of always on that course. I mean, China was closed off to globalization under Mao, right? And it's not until Deng takes takes power that it's open to the West. Well, I mean, even then, for the longest time, the the whole supposedly discovery of the quote-unquote new world by Europeans was this faster route. And we know Japan, Japan wasn't open for trade till what the end of the 18th century or yeah. So, I mean, these kind of things are interesting about the question. I guess that's the thing, right? Whereas capitalism, at least in in the form in which we know it, wouldn't necessarily say, okay, we got enough metal. Like we can can shut the mines down. We're we're good. Um, And logic doesn't work. Yeah. At least not in the logic of, exponential growth that's expected or right. quarterly growth or whatever you want to call it. Or really a process of decoding ultimately, right? Yeah. I mean, because they, they seem to be saying here very clearly that if there's something else in common, if there are a lot of things in common, but here specifically, there's this, the despotic machine also dreads decoded flows and, it, and is also wary about cordoning off different sectors of the economy that might threaten the codes or the overcodes. Yeah, not only decoded flows, but rebellious organs. Yes. Yeah. Because they do say that it's not just about now. It's it's also about this notion that let no flow or especially no organ escape from the the despotic overcoding. They do say something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Every um, every like eye that looks to I, I can't remember the exact wording, but basically anything that looks to like. Ah, yes. A a look that looks to, they might be quoting Shakespeare, but they talk about the half-deaf Julius Caesar. 
who like sees oh yeah brutus hungry cash yeah you lean the hungry cash but also brutus with a smile or a smirk like he mocked himself isn't it something like that this is where the the despot senses to his death he feels his death from within but it comes from without right something like that oh that's good wait you said it comes from within but he feels it from within but yeah okay gotcha never mind I thought that was interesting. It was the reverse. Looking from without, but it comes from within. Yeah, an eye with too steady a look, a mouth with too unfamiliar a smile. Each organ Mm -hmm. is a possible protest. Awesome. Then you have the half-death Caesar. And they literally say disorganized hyphen. hyphen (laughs) Uh, There you go. The body of the despot into the latrines of the city. And then they go on to explain how like writing is always this flow of the sperm that conceived the despot and the shit that flows through his tomb right Um, it's always a simulation of that flow so there's a lot this is a really packed final section too oh yeah we talked a little bit about nietzsche and this problem of mobile blocks of dead and the alliance system and the territorial machine becoming infinite and probably a million different ways of telling the story but they do in the section seven quoting nietzsche mocking this idea that god sacrifices himself for our sake, because of love of love of the debtor, right? Because we we owe this debt because of sin. I don't know if you guys looked at that footnote, but that's yeah. God Himself makes payment to Himself. God is the only being who can redeem man from what has become unredeemable for man Himself. So we see this notion about the debt become infinite, and it become a debt of existence. But this also feeds into. Not only the notion of overcoding, but the birth of writing proper or linear writing, as they call it. One of the things that they say is that the voice not only is subordinated to, I'm not sure if it's the voice that's subordinated and subordinates the hand or if it's subordinate, it has to subordinate the eye, right? Because the eye now takes on the function of reading. Well, the hand subordinates itself to the voice in order to supplant the voice. Awesome. Yeah. And the voice, as as we talked earlier, takes on this function on high, right? Um, And at the same time, something something jumps outside of the chain, right? Something jumps outside of the signifying chain, which is the phallus or the master signifier, right? That... Yeah, the voice of the voice of God. Yeah, it no, the voice no longer sings back to the singers, but dictates and decrees. So there's no longer any singing, no longer any dancing. It's all writing dictation. Instead of the eye seeing, it becomes a reader. It's reading now. And so the triangle that system of cruelty was set up in that formation literally becomes a pyramid with the despot at the apex. Right. Yeah. It kind of, uh, kind of like the back of the, the our dollar bill, right? With the with the Mason, the Masonic sim- symbolism of the, the thing, uh, yeah. That actually is is good. But you're right. It's interesting. They say the territorial triangle is crushed, or no, it subsists at the bottom of the pyramid, right? But I guess that's it's crushed under the the despot, right? The yeah. despot. It props it up, and they say if we call the order of representation in a social system a plane of consistency, which is interesting, is that that term will, will stick with, with them for the next two books. It is evident that this plane has changed, that it has become a plane of subordination and no longer one of connotation. The flattening of the graphy onto the voice has made a transcendent object jump outside the chain. A mute voice on which the whole chain now seems to pin 
and in relation to which it becomes linearized. Yeah. And they say perhaps it is with the linearization of writing that the question, what does it mean, takes on this life that still seems to, to dominate, if not our habitual ways of thinking about things, at least specifically psychoanalytic interpretation. Right. Because this connects to how they view the sign and the signifier and the signified too. That's where this is leading. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. The signifier is merely the deterritorialized sign itself. Is this what you're looking at? Yeah. 206? Okay. Yeah. The sign made letter. So everything is flowing from the despotic signifier now. It's not non-signifying anymore in this new arrangement. So like law, the father or names of the father. Right. And as they want to say, or whatever. and what they want to say is that this law or name of the father, which is despotic, which they really say that Lacan is despotic regime par right. excellence. Yeah. Freud in his own way too, but Lacan by, oh, yeah. Lacan, by Lacan by like trying to formalize this with the name of the father. They, if you remember, I think it's in chapter two where they say, it's not about the name of the father. It's about all the names in history. <laughs> right. That's at least that's the schizophrenic viewpoint positively that they're putting forth. And you yeah, I see here, Manny, the sign made letter. Desire no longer dares to desire, having become a desire, desire, a desire of the despot's desire. Again, I think they're parodying Lacan, right? This desire is desire of the other, the big, the big other. Right, yeah. The body no longer allows itself to be engraved like the earth, but prostrates itself before the engravings of the despot the new full body. The despotic signifier is over. That's what sort of overcodes the, the chain. And this is interesting because it goes into how they view linguistics. Cause they say that the signified is the effect of the signifier, not what it represents or designates. So it's, it's what the signifier is producing because otherwise it seems they would be saying that nothing really has to signify anything. Like there's no inherent, like, yeah. It's, it's it's more decided by society in this way. Mm-hmm. So this is how incest becomes possible, right? Because it's yes. like fucking your mother is only fucking your mother once it's fucking your mother, basically. Like that's the <laughs> or or but it does seem like it's possible. Now the way I took it, Maddie, just to expand on this, is it possible only for the despot, insofar as the despot commits the twin incest of fucking the mother of the tribe and the sister of the either of the tribe or of like the, the chief. It's his way of binding filiation and, and alliance right? in this new alliance and the direct filiation. You're, he's from outside, but he performs this act that can only be performed within. It's, it's that weird exogamy endogamy thing. Maybe that was earlier, but I do believe that could be, you might be able to find it, but if I, okay, it's at the very start of seven. So this is 200. Incest with the sister and incest with the mother are very different things. The sister is not a substitute for the mother. The one belongs to the connective category of alliance, the other to the disjunctive category of filiation. Yeah. Uh, the despot's incest is twofold. So that's, I guess that that was kind of what I was getting at is, is it that the, and what they're calling the hero, I'm thinking of Gilgamesh, but, you know, Cooper might be thinking of Dune, but also is it the despot for now whom incest is possible? Is that, is that, is am I reading that right? Yeah. Well, it's the despot that performs it. Mm -hmm. There is interesting here relative to Dune in that. Okay. So 
the whole sequence is okay. So Paul becomes the new emperor. He takes the old emperor's daughter as his wife, but they don't have any children. He has children with his Fremen companion, and that's how they reproduce. And then the son takes his own sister as wife, but they don't reproduce. She reproduces with the son of the formerly displaced house, the Mm. formerly displaced imperial line, rather. And so that's how he preserves the Atreides bloodline and the imperial bloodline, but without a direct descendant himself, of his own loins, at least, or whatever. I don't know if that sets off any ideas or ties into this much, but kind of. I think think this gets to the heart of it. This is 201. In the imperial formation, incest has ceased being the displaced represented of desire to become the repressing representation itself. So the way the despot has of committing incest or making it possible in no way involves removing the apparatus of, of social and psychic repression. The despot's inhibition force part of the apparatus. It changes only the parts of the machine. A new severity. Social repression has everything to gain when incest comes to take the place of the representation itself and in this capacity take charge of the repressing function. I think this, this only makes sense to me, and I, I, I want you guys to help me with this because I'm trying to articulate it, where this move from the displaced represented to the repressing representation itself only makes sense insofar as we move from the socius as the earth, the full body of the organs as earth to the despot. The earth becomes replaced by the, the despot, which now seems to seems as though all the productive activity, all production stems from him, if that makes sense. As usurpation of the body of the earth. Interesting. I, th- I think so. Which is part of the outgrowth from the triangular cruelty system into the pyramid. Right. And the evolution of the relationship between voice and, and writing and how writing has become this kind of... Because all of the flows of writing are brought in by the despot with bureaucracy and accounting and tax collection, like they say, right. on yeah, that page. Yeah, These new writing machines that form part of the bureaucracy and part of the assemblage of written law. It's no longer just a question of sort of these unwritten laws or these prohibitions and and superstitions and whatnot. Now there's a code in a different sense, like a code of Hammurabi, right? Like a kind of a generalized law for peoples. And they do make the, the case pretty forcefully that it's, it seems like you have to have a subordinated and a subor- uh, and a subordinating, you have to have master slave, you have to have the encounter of two peoples for language to develop this writing system. And then that's where they say that if the unconscious is linguistic, it's not one language, it's two. Yeah, I like that. Again, kind of a jab at Lacan, right? Yeah. But that's how the voice subordinates itself, or that's how graphism subordinates itself to the voice in, the, in order to supplant it, because it's the voice on high is in control, but the, it's the writing itself and that written law that takes authority. And that reminds me of how um, in Coldness and Cruelty, he talks about the the contract instanti- of that relationship instantiates a law, and then the law outgrows the contract. It's that fascinating. same kind of relationship, yeah. That's fascinating. That was that was one of the books that Lacan enjoyed, by the way. I don't know yeah. if, if you, yeah, you've heard about that. Yeah. Let's see. I see this on 207. 
Talk about the master signifier. In vain will the comparison of language to exchange and money be pushed to its furthest point, subjecting language to the paradigms of an active capitalism. For one will never prevent the signifier from reintroducing its transcendence and from bearing witness for a vanished despot who still functions in modern imperialism. Even when it speaks Swiss or American, linguistics manipulates the shadow of oriental despotism. And then he starts talking about Sir and all this, but I, it reminds me that this is like Watery's pet project. Even in, in Machine Gun Conscious, he's, he's saying like linguists are imperialists <laughs> because they repress or hide the act of power in taking language to be the dominant form of, of science, of signing, if you will. Yeah, there's all these connections. The despotic machine is also literary and this writing is the simulation of this flow that runs through the entire arrangements evolution. And that's connected to like the law and all of it. Like they're kind of, they're explaining their interpretation of how this works and how this happened. And yeah. And they're linking it. I mean, this is one of their most explicit attacks against Lacan, right? They're linking it against Lacan's even if he may have merits over Freud for saving him from a certain biological, you know, dead end or bringing out the symbolic and linguistic aspects of the unconscious or de-edipalizing psychoanalysis, he still remains linked to the signifier, which they see as a part of overcoding, a part of the despotic machine. So they that's why they end the, the, the section, how's it go? Isn't the strength of Lacan to have saved psychoanalysis from the frenzied edipalization to which it was linking its fate to have brought about this salvation, even at the price of a regression, and even though it meant the unconscious would be kept under the weight of the despotic apparatus that would be reinterpreted starting from this apparatus, the law and the signifier. Phallus and castration, yes, Oedipus, no, the despotic age of the unconscious. This seems to be in the previous sections and in previous places, a lot of times they kind of pussyfoot around and are like, well, it was really those around Lacan, the, the Lacanian disciples that were kind of fucking things up or trying to like ruin the master. But but here they, they seem to be guns ablaze. I think it's Guattari putting forth his interpretation of Lacan at the same time. Because mm-hmm. the footnote on 209, it says that Lacan's theory should be interpreted less as a linguistic conception of the unconscious than as a critique of linguistics in the name of the unconscious. He's also saying maybe all these other Lacanians have read him wrong. And so here's... Right. That does seem a charitable way uh, of... Uh, 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 we, we've been we've been mean to Lacan, but but I do like that. That's a that's a he good point. He can take it. Yeah, he, he can mean take it. Well, that's true. He can take it. That's true. But no, that's that's good. <laughs> that I think that you're right, Maddie. That they have stressed that Lacan has been misunderstood, but they also seem to to be you know as Cooper says, he can take it. And so like they're not going to hold back from what they see as uh, as this Lacan is. I guess that's the interesting thing. Like if Freud seems more despotic for the way he treated his disciples and all of the messy breakups he had with Jung and, and Rank and, and Adler and all these other people, it's Lacan who really, in their way of describing the despotic regime and the despotic signifier, it's Lacan who, who really like is the, the despot of psychoanalysis. 
that's how Deleuze treats philosophy too. Is like I'm gonna read this person, I'm gonna vindicate what I like about it, mm-hmm. what I think is useful, and the rest is like it's sort of critically left out of the interpretation. But that that goes into his theory of interpretation itself. Of I'm gonna put it under my force and produce mm-hmm. this new thing out of it. And it's very, it's a good kind of productive way of doing that. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, that's kind of what we do, I think, too. <laughs> Honestly, well, well, I, like in our discussions, I, at least. I think, I, yeah, it's just that maybe Deleuze is more methodical. Oh yeah, about well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to. <laughs> yeah, this is haphazard buggery, right? I'm not Where, equating myself to Deleuze, but I'm just saying. No, I, I know. Um, <laughs> but I know. I think you're right, Maddie. This notion of, you know, as he calls it himself, this notion of buggery, this notion of like giving the thinker a monstrous child that even if it has this maximum of differentiation, they still can't disown. There does seem to be something going on here. I'd be curious about surplus code, perhaps. Surplus code, latency, and maybe even like a little bit more discussion about the the debt as far as what is the debt itself? So the surplus value of code, I'll answer just really quickly where... They point out that, let's say in the territorial machine, you've got, you have what they call a brother-sister relationship, and it can be passed down indefinitely from the father. That in the majority of societies, in typical territorial societies, it's a patrilineal over a matrilineal society, which means that the father-son statuses are passed down to father-son, but- right. In terms of the daughter, when uh, when a daughter takes a husband, she doesn't stop having a brother, but she's removed from her mother's brother's family, the maternal uncle. And she constitutes a new, now her brother will be the uncle of her daughter who, you know, the cycle continues. But basically it, it, it comes down to this notion of like, what is the first allowable incest? Well, it should be the aunt. But the aunt is blocked, too, because of the maternal uncle. And when they look at how the primary homosexuality gets into negotiating who gets to take a wife, who gets who has to give a wife, where it's owed, they talk about this surplus value of code that comes to the maternal uncle because it is the maternal uncle who is sort of giving up a daughter for another family to extend affiliations and cement the alliances. That is one of the ways they look at it through the kinship systems. Now that's very abstract to us, I think. And it's still abstract to me because I spent hours and hours yesterday trying to look through it. But I think you could talk about, we could look at other examples where you could find it in say like the prohibition of the hunter eating his own kill, right? This leaves that's blocked for him, but it leaves it open to circulating for others because in a certain way, while it's negatively marked for him, he's also allowed to everyone else's kill. So there is a surplus coming his way, but he also leaves open a surplus for others. It's the same thing with we have to keep our, you know, if the aunt is the first blocked incest object, it's the sister, but we have to keep our sister open for the for the alliances, right? To, right. To, so it's kind of, this is how they kind of understand this. And even if you just 
take into account gift economies where they quote mouse or the the formula mouse's formula the spirit of the thing given and this potentiality increasing this this interest that we have to pay back or payback's not even the word we have to uh reciprocate we, we have to reciprocate with interest i think that's another way of talking about the surplus value of code so the surplus <laughs> in the interest of the return gift right gift. If, if the maternal uncle they talk about like a group has given a wife to another group. Mm-hmm. So it's been taken from, they've been taken from, but they are then are in the position to become compensated. Right. This is what they call bride wealth or bride price. Yeah. Yeah. So like these ways of discussing the circulation of stocks and the the sort of mobile, because for Nietzsche and especially for Deleuze and Guattari and these anthropologists, what they're looking at when alliances are extending the affiliations, something is given up, specifically the women. They're the ones that are circulating. And what is owed is a bride price. That's that's where the debt comes in. That's why alliances are essentially linked to this notion of mobile blocks of debt versus the stocks, say the stocks of women and children. If any of that makes sense, right? Because it is all about... Wait, go back to the part about the mobile blocks of debt in comparison, in contrast, rather. So... My group gives up a woman and the next generation, we will be owed a woman. Okay. But in the meantime, we are also, say, giving cattle or some other things in order to pay off the taking of a wife, right? We pay a, we pay a bride price. Right. And in the next Dowry. generation, okay. yeah, it's kind of like a dowerage, but it seems inverted. It depends on the society, right? Anyway, I hope some of that makes sense, but that's that's kind of where they argue. I, I could find the exact passage where they say it, but it's really in the kinship system. It's the maternal uncle who who sort of is the one who is in this position of plus or minus. Ooh, Again, it's very relative strange. to Lacan's graph of sexuation, right? Maybe. I mean, you said plus minus on the. Well, plus On the male side, right? That doesn't mean he has the phallus, <laughs> but it is the maternal uncle. It is on the male side, right? Yeah. I mean, it's. Should we talk about uh, Rosantamont and the, the spotted Ooh, law more? That's good. Because that is one of the changes between the two machines. It has to do with the infinite debt, too, like you were talking about. Because basically, the idea is that this Christian love is a kind of infinite spirit spiritual, emotional debt that is placed upon existence of people itself. Whereas it is like, well, I died for your sins. Now you owe me everything kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, yeah, that kind of, um, that kind of change that happened between the two machines is connected to what despotic law is because it says punishment becomes a vengeance. And the despot is actually wielding that triangle of voice, hand and eye joined together as a vengeance of his new alliance. Yeah, I really like that. And this, I think you mentioned it early, earlier, Maddie, around the section where they bring up Foucault, right? And taxation. Yeah. Do you remember this part, uh, Cooper? It's on 197. They Yeah, I definitely remember reading. Foucault shows how in certain Greek tyrannies, the tax on aristocrats and the distribution of money to the poor are a means of bringing the money back to the rich and a means of remarkably widening the regime of debts, making it even stronger by anticipating and repressing any re-territorialization that might be produced by the economic givens of the agrarian problem. And they say heavy taxes are good for business, right? The American way. (laughs) 
Yeah, taxation is inseparable from the system of money. Money, the circulation of money is the means for rendering the debt infinite. And also, as I say later, before the law becomes a fake guarantee against despotism, it's the invention of the despot itself. It is the judicial form assumed by the infinite debt. So there's a monetary and a judicial form. You can take the des- or the debtor's side against the creditor when necessary so as to consolidate the infinite debt. It's the same. Right. Same debt jubilees. <laughs> debt jubilees and things. Is that kind of what it's getting at? Whenever in the past the sovereign would wipe out, they would kind of have these debt jubilees where they would eliminate massive quantities of debt. I think that that could be on either a side because, because on, on one side, it goes exactly with what we're talking about and when they're quoting Foucault. But on the other side, if we're more charitable and we think about in terms of the territorial machine, when we talk about the gift economies, they do say that at certain points, at certain places, circulation or this reciprocation has to pause so that a stock can be reformed. That could be one of the ways of thinking about it. I think really what Deleuze and Guattari are trying to argue is the debt jubilees have, it's a question on the predominance of the money form, I think. Because in the despotic machine, the money form is, as they say, it's not about commerce. It's about what? Taxes. Money is fundamentally inseparable, not from commerce, but from taxes as the maintenance of the apparatus of the state. So I guess that would be the question, right? The money form, the the evolution of the, the state at that point and, um, and the question of taxation would have to all come into play before we could abstractly, we, that would make concrete the question about jubilees. So I'm leaving it open. Like maybe, maybe there's a way in which that jubilees could function on either side of the, of the formation of the state. But this was very good about getting into the debt becomes infinite and the debt becomes a debt of existence. This is why they say monotheism is always on the rise when the despotic machine rises its head. And I think that with Rizantimon, translators have a great footnote, don't they? I think. Because if now the in the territorial machine, the eye was about extracting a certain surplus value, right? We could say a surplus value of code could be another way to talk about it. Your question, your earlier question, Cooper. It's not about vengeance. Whereas with the despotic machine, yeah, yeah. As, Matt, as Maddie pointed out, if the despotic machine is paranoid about any organ escaping its overcoating, escaping its grasp, this is why the eye now is, is an eye. Of, it's, a, it's a system of terror, right? It's, a, it's an eye that is vengeful. And that's where Rizantimon starts to creep in. Oh, it's on 214. Push back and repress, incarcerated within, and finally able to discharge and vent itself only on itself. This is when active forces become reactive, right? And they start to they start to turn inward. It produces suffering, yeah. The eternal resentment of the subjects answers to the eternal vengeance of the despots. And an eternal resentment reverberates through the entire society. This is why it's worse than the system of cruelty, I think, for and Guattari, right? Yeah, this is why it's a system of terror now. Mm-hmm. And what they had that Nietzsche quote, which I love, like an incredible, what is it? An incredible or an incredible quantity of freedom had to have been expelled from the world. Is that is that what they? Yeah. They say something like that? Yeah. Or he says something like that? Yeah, I definitely remember that quote, that specific end of it too. And because of that, Rosantamont, 
rebellions and secessions actually maintain the imperial system and they're endemic to it because the designation of the despot is arbitrary and it has to be for the system's constitution. And that's kind of leading into how capitalism treats what threatens it by reincorporating mm. it into itself. That's the early version that the despotic machine already had developed. That's smart. That's good. And vengeance and resentment are the becoming of imperial justice. Yeah, I think that, that you're right, Maddie. That, that's a good point about this notion that this is part of the axiomatic, right? That it's it's always coming towards its absolute limit, but like pushing, pushing pushing that limit further. That way it can always market what seemingly to traditional values was against capitalism. So that's one of its most devious means. Can I go back <clears throat> to the cold open thing I read too? Yeah, absolute limit of... Well, the schizophrenia limits. is the absolute limit. Capitalism yeah. is the relative limit. Third, there's no social formation that does not foresee or experience a foreboding of the real form in which the limit threatens to arrive and which it wards off with all the strength it can command. Once the obstinacy with which the formations preceding capitalism and cast the merchant and the technician, preventing flows of money and flows of production from assuming an autonomy that would destroy their codes, such is the real limit. So the destruction of codes is, is the real limit. Because the despotic machine doesn't destroy the old code. Sometimes it even lets them subsist. It just, relatively speaking, though, it overcoats them. At the same time, represses the desiring machines. Mm-hmm. The desiring machines are what threatens the social or the socius. At the same time, it's all because of a libidinal investment in the state machine. Yeah, I mean, this. I think that that's, that's the important part for them and their way of navigating Freud and Jung is it's not about this desexualized sublimation. You get off on, on policing others, right? You get off on being a fascist. You get off on the bureaucrat get off, gets off on fondling his papers. You know, they, they say all that shit, right? And it's not just a familial thing. It's not just limited to that kind of mm-hmm. interplay. Libidinal investments are made through Oedipus, through the triangle. And that's how that gets incorporated in the despotic machine. Well, Oedipus, still, we still haven't gotten to Oedipus. <laughs> I think that what they are tracing is the migration of Oedipus to the center of the correspondence between social reproduction and familial reproduction, vice okay. versa, right? Gotcha. The despot starts to give us the outline, right? Because the despot traces that, that first move. With the direct affiliation. The transition from familial to social reproduction? The transition to them becoming correspondent in one-to-one fashion, such that the familial, the nuclear family begins to close in on itself, right? And become this little microcosm. That for them, that's, it's the closure uh, that seals the fate of Oedipus, right? Because as long as the affiliations and alliances Affiliations are extended and the alliances are keeping it open to the to the social field as a practice and politics. Oedipus can't grow on that soil. Interesting. And in the despotic machine, Oedipus is only relatively granted to the despot, right? Insofar as incest is only possible for him. For, uh, for him, not for anyone else. So does uh, he does Oedipus have the phallus? Does Oedipus, Oedipus have the phallus? You mean <laughs> does the despot have the phallus? Does the despot have the phallus? I think that. I think that they would say that the despot worships the phallus insofar as it's detached. It becomes the disembodied voice, right? It becomes the voice of, of God. So, so in that sense, he's kind of the, the functionary of the phallus. 
It's similar to how the sadist is in a relation between himself and a transcendental object of pure reason. And that's like mm. the real, it has nothing to do with his victims. It's kind of similar to that kind of thing. It is about the despot's control over society. Mm, that's good. That's interesting relative to Kant and the Sad. whole discussion. Yeah, yeah Kant of Exod. But for Oedipus to become a complex, it has to go from the repressing representation to the representative of desire itself, a virtue yes. of being the displaced represented. The infinite debt must be internalized and spiritualized as such in Christianity and what follows, which is like psychoanalysis, you know. The royal triad must masculinize itself as the holy trinity. Oedipus yeah. the despot becomes Oedipus as subjects, subjugated individuals, fathers and sons. Desire will have to gain its own raisonnement. Desire reacting upon itself is edible. Yeah, the internalization. That okay. So now we're at the we're at the end of the chapter, and that that's a really good point to to really hit home. That's the next step is this spiritualization of the infinite dead. And they say Christianity and what follows, right? It's, like, it's not that Christianity caused it. It's just you guys are saying it's it's symptomatic of what Oedipus will latch onto. Right. It, there was nothing guaranteeing that Christianity would have succeeded. And there are a lot of things against it, right, in the early days, if, as we know. Yeah, it sort of had a revolutionary potential or, at some point in decoding yeah, the flows of Judaism and even, I guess, the pantheistic Roman religions. Yeah, I mean, it was th it threatened uh, the, the Roman the Roman Empire, at least it was felt as a threat by the Roman Empire. And then <laughs> I, I'm not sure if it was just. And then Constantine or, displaced his was, limit, <laughs> displaced the limit. At, at some point, one of the emperors was like, okay, I can form this new alliance and maybe give us another, what, 150 years? And that's when. Constantine. Yeah. So Constantine takes up Christianity as a state religion because if you can't beat them, join them, right? If you can't feed them to the lines and it's not working, might as well try to eke out a little bit more time. Yeah, it really displaces to the control from, I guess, the control society. What is it? I got it backwards, right? Like at the inward control of Christianity, right? Versus like the inward cop, the cop in your head mm -hmm. for Christianity, the mod that represses consciously, I guess. Yeah, because I mean, in a certain way, it's kind of a paradox because when you read a saying like pluck out the plank in your own eye rather than worry about the speck in your brother's eye it seems to be saying don't be this this snitch and this cop about other people but really it's saying exactly what what we just discussed with the end of the chapter that maddie pointed out is like you're internalizing the self-criticism right you're really raising the cop against yourself the voice in your head right now you did ask something about latency but i I, I don't, re I remember reading what they were saying about latency in this, and I'm not exactly sure if they are using it simply as the, you know, because Freud, like in reading dreams, you have right, the right, yeah. manifest content and the latent content, but you also have the latency period, which is meant to coincide with and in a passage here I can read okay. that, that I think might, this is actually follows after the Nietzsche. So Nietzsche uses the word latent, or at least the translator Nietzsche does. Right. As Nietzsche says when he shows precisely how punishment becomes a vengeance in the imperial formations, 
a tremendous quantity of freedom must have been expelled from the world or at least from the visible world and made it as, as it were latent under the hammer blows and artist violence. There occurs a detachment and elevation of the death instinct, which ceases to be coded in the interplay of savage actions and reactions where fatalism was still something enacted in order to become the somber agent of overcoding the detached object that hovers over each subject as though the social machine had come unstuck from its desiring machines. Death, the desire of desire, the desire of the despot's desire, a latency inscribed on the bowels of the state apparatus. A latency inscribed on the bowels of the state apparatus. In the bowels. In the bowels. I mean, it's it's hard to say what that latency refers to. If yeah, it is I'm the just gonna look up latency generally. Well, I mean, like latency could imply from one point of view that it will evolve to something later. But as we've as I've kind of tried to argue, I, I don't think that the evolutionary point of view is their point of view. While yeah. on the other hand, latent is beneath the surface, right? It's it's right. hidden or obviously that's a modern definition of latency, but you know, I guess that if we take the evolutionism out of the, the first point and that latency could just be a deferral, right? Like lag in a system in computer technology, then that kind of gets us to this notion of the signifier as sliding. This is why Derrida develops the notion of deferrance, right? Which is literally also deferral, right? Meaning is always deferred, postponed. And so that, that becomes a question if the signifier is the dominant mode of representation in, in the imperial formations, then maybe that's what they mean. But given the closeness to the Nietzschean usage of it, or at least the translation of it, seems like Leighton is not that. I mean, I guess coming back to what Maddie brought up with the triad of the, the eye, hand, voice in territorial representation becomes the support and the substructure of, of the despotic voice on high and all of that. I mean, that's a type of latency, one could say. Well, one of the things that they use latency to describe are the rebellions and secessions that maintain oh. the imperial system. So it could be like how you're saying about how it's a pause. It looks like it's about to end, but it's actually just maintaining it. Right. And do they say in these sections, this notion that like, even they say something like even socialists have given up the idea that capitalism can be defeated by attrition or something like that. Yeah, it might be Baudrillard. It's either Baudrillard right. or... Well, they might say that too, but they, they... I don't know if they say it in this section or, or in the earlier... It was in, in this early, chapter. It's definitely in an earlier, yeah. Yeah, and this chapter, in chapter, they... Three. I think that that's part of it too. Like this notion that if we just wait it out, capitalism will defeat itself. And right. I think that what Deleuze and Guattari are arguing, and Marx himself, or at least they're saying Marx argued, is that only if capitalism can be brought to its self-critique, its auto-critique. If the conditions are ripe for that or ready for that and who's to say they are fully right then we have what jesus says right it's easier to think of the end of the world than the end of capitalism i know y'all have heard that a bunch. yeah this kind of state of capitalism it's <laughs> just a gleam in our eyes still yeah so what we, when whatever looks like a threat is actually just going to be reincorporated and then used against us yeah like covid well i don't know if covid was ever a threat to capitalism directly well, it at least appeared to be, right? I mean, that's an example of it encountering and surpassing its own limit. 
Well, it was a mean, means for continuing the trend we've seen in our lifetimes, which was exacerbating the, the distribution of wealth towards the billionaires and making new billionaires, pharma billionaires, yeah. new pharma billionaires. Yeah, definitely the way it was handled shows this kind of process. They weren't allowing it to disrupt the system. They, yeah. It's such a the circulation. Well, here's where circulation, I think. Circulation is sort of necessary. If money isn't moving, I capital, see if the flows of money aren't moving, then the system collapses. Right? The, velo- like the a, velocity of exchange exactly. is okay, correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or the velocity of money or exchange. I think you can, either way, it just exemplifies how that kind of is an important component. It's what is it? I think there's an arbitrage. Okay. So there's like arbitrage is where you're sort of playing the daily fluctuations for profit of currency or stocks or whatever, right? There's always that arbitrage to play off of. And the more oscillation there is in price, the more you can extract. Gotcha. Yeah. Also flows of people. They weren't going to let everybody just be home forever. Sadly. (laughs) Flows of immigrants. I mean, that's more climate change resultant than specifically COVID, but. Right. But, you know, I mean. It's not an exclusive disjunction. The rise in natural disasters from climate change. Displacing territories, yeah. It's kind of hard to, it's almost moot to say like, well, it was COVID a natural disaster or a human-made disaster. I mean, you know, it's, right, they yeah, say like- Exactly, the body of the earth. Any any last thoughts? I know that these are juicy sections, but I feel like we, we got a lot of stuff out of them. I didn't have anything else. I'm really happy. I'm thinking actually we should probably cut it just because we've got so much. I do like that Maddie kept coming back to the um, to the despot, the the tyrant. The tyrant ends by his body being being thrown into the the sewer, right? With all the shit. <laughs> we should thank Maddie for joining us. Did you have anything um, else you wanted to say, or your please. YouTube or anything like that, Tim? Well, yeah, check out my YouTube channel. I don't know if I'm that proud of it at this moment, but like. There'll probably be some better things on there in the future. I'm like working on trying to like write things and stuff like that. So I don't know. I if you would want me back to talk about coldness and cruelty, maybe or like oh, yeah. other Deleuze texts, I will definitely do that because that's what I've been reading too recently and I'm trying to put my own philosophy together. So I think that's awesome. Definitely have you back to talk about that and and maybe some more. Convex Saad. I, I saw you yeah, kind of dropping some of that in. Yeah. Um, that would be cool to talk about. And definitely, I mean, it's really nice to have another voice in in this very dense material. Uh, very enjoyable, but very dense material. But um, definitely we'll, next time we have you, we'll let you choose the poison. How about that? <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's Madeline13, right? That's your YouTube yeah. channel. Yeah. I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. Now this will be the Machine Gun Conscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins signing off for the week. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is a typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality.
not have a misunderstanding here. Lobotomized people, as in uh, block work or anything.